Welcome to Civics and Coffee. My name is Alicia and I am a self-professed history nerd. Each week, I'm going to chat about a topic on U.S. history and give you both the highlights and occasionally break down some of the complexities in history and share stories you may not remember learning in high school, all in the time it takes to enjoy a cup of coffee. Hey peeps, welcome back. I mentioned last week that I was going to be doing a few episodes on the Washingtons. Many articles, books, and documentaries have been spent diving into the life and mind of our first president. And for good reason. He created the basic foundation of what we know as the modern presidency. He also played key roles in the early years of the Republic. He's even been mentioned a few times here on this podcast. Check out the episodes on the French and Indian War, American Revolution, the Culper Spiring, and the episode on the run-up to the Constitution Convention for his cameos. So, when discussing this quote-unquote founding father, what is there left to say? I decided I would approach the episodes on George in a pre-presidential and presidential segment. Though it hardly seems fair to divide the man's life by 57 years and 10 years, respectively, I think it's important to do a deep dive into his presidency since he very much paved the way for how the presidency would function and set the tone for future generations. So, this week, I'm going to dive into the pre-presidential life of the first president, George Washington. Grab your cup of coffee, peeps. Let's do this. George Washington was born on February 22, 1732, at Pope's Creek in Westmoreland County, Virginia. He was the first of six children born to his father, Augustine, who served as a planter in Justice of the Peace, and his mother, Mary Ball Washington. Mary was Augustine's second wife, and George also had four siblings from his father's first marriage. The family owned several thousand acres in Virginia, and in 1734, Washington and family moved up the Potomac River to take up residence in what was then known as Little Hunting Creek Plantation. Originally leased from his sister, Augustine Washington purchased the land outright and eventually built a modest home for his growing family. Now known as Mount Vernon, George would only spend four years on the property before his family moved again to Ferry Farm in 1738. Located on a hill recessed from the Rappanoic River, Ferry Farm was a 260-acre tract of land close to Fredericksburg. The two-story home contains seven rooms and is described in Washington's biography by Ron Chernow as a handsome dwelling house. Located along the river, the home was in the direct path of the ferry, hence the title of the property. As a youngster, George idolized his older brother Lawrence. The oldest of Washington's children, Lawrence was educated overseas and had a successful military career, earning a British royal commission, something younger brother George would attempt but never achieve. Lawrence's influence and impact increased when the patriarch of the family died when George was just 11 years old. Passing away on April 12, 1743, Augustine Washington was just 49, and his premature passing would infuse George with a sense of weariness about early death throughout his life. Upon his father's passing, George inherited various tracts of land, including Ferry Farm, and ten enslaved individuals. The larger estates went to the elder brothers in the family, with Lawrence receiving the eye of the prize in George's dream home, 
Mount Vernon. But being that he was only 11, George was not yet able to take control of the property. That responsibility went to Mother Mary. And Mary did not come to play, y'all. She maintained control of the family farm for nearly 30 years, well past George's ascent into adulthood. Many who studied Washington know his relationship with his mother was odd and a bit cold. Mary is described as somewhat of a tyrant, but oddly enough, she and her son were similar in many ways. Widowed at 35, Mary had to contend with raising five children, managing a farm, and overseeing the enslaved individuals left to her son. Unlike many people during this time, Mary never remarried. While there is no expressed reason for this, marriage during this time was made with monetary advancement in mind, and women were assessed in part by what they brought into the marriage, such as property or slaves. While 260 acres sounds amazing to us today, especially this California native, it wasn't all that spectacular back then. Add to that that she was older and perhaps seen as past her child-rearing days with five children of her own, and I think perhaps Mary was maybe filtered out of the marriage pool. But Mary ruled with an iron fist. She was very hard on George, and this only increased his neuroses as an adult. In Ron Trenow's biography of Washington, he writes of the impacts of the mother-son relationship, saying, quote, The hypercritical mother produced a son who was overly sensitive to criticism and suffered a lifelong need for approval, end quote. The obsession about reputation and status followed Washington throughout his life. Honor and reputation were an important political tool during the early republic, but Washington was notoriously thin-skinned and in constant worry about what others thought of him. Mother and son would have a formal relationship for the rest of Mary's life. In letters to his mother, he always addressed her as honored madam and ended by some form of your dutiful son. No dear or love here. It is this tense relationship that spurred Washington to seek solace with his older brothers, and he would often visit both Lawrence and Augustine Jr. And while he had hopes of attending school overseas like his brothers, the premature death of his father dashed those chances. His lack of formal education haunted him into adulthood, and he is the least formally educated of the founding fathers. But what he lacked in formal education, he strived to make up for in sheer willpower, working throughout his life to increase his knowledge by watching others and reading newspapers, magazines, and books. Due to the smaller estate left to young George, the family struggled financially. These struggles got to the point where George had to quit school and turn to surveying to help his family make ends meet. This seemed to be a natural talent and a joy for George, who loved being outdoors and was good at math. He made surveys of several areas of Virginia and, aided with his brother Lawrence's connections, was appointed the surveyor of Culpeper County. He met the infamous Sally Fairfax when he was 16 and she 18. Sally was the wife of his neighbor and she was well-educated, sophisticated, and part of the higher class of Virginia society. Also known as quite a beautiful woman, Washington became smitten with what he felt was the ideal specimen. She taught him proper etiquette. He responded with love letters. George grew up in a time where wealth, power, and family connections made a man. And had situations been different, Sally Fairfax could have been America's first first lady. Alas, enamored though he may be, 
George was also a man who, as I've said, cared deeply about his reputation and knew that pursuing Sally Fairfax was a dead end, and so he had turned his attentions elsewhere. Tragedy would strike once more for George as his brother and idol Lawrence contracted tuberculosis. Desperate for a treatment and a cure, Lawrence traveled to England, the warm springs of Virginia, and even the warmer climate of Barbados in hopes the cough would subside. Unable to travel alone, George joined his brother on the trip to the Caribbean island, the only such trip outside of North America he would ever take. The journey proved ineffective, and Lawrence passed away at Mount Vernon on July 26, 1752. He was just 34. The loss of his brother hit George especially hard. After the death of his father, George spent a lot of time with his older brother at Mount Vernon and looked to emulate his successes. Perhaps in tribute to his fallen brother, George, too, wanted to be a military man. Giving up surveying, Washington began his military career as an adjutant general in the Southern District of Virginia. The post did not excite George, who had hoped for the more glamorous post of the Northern Neck area of Virginia. But, even though it wasn't the post he wanted, it was fortuitous nonetheless. His commission is what jump-started his military career. And if you've listened to previous episodes of the podcast, then you know young George was given a mission during the run-up to the French and Indian War, and was eventually classified as a major. After his time of service as a colonial officer, Washington attempted to achieve a full British rank, but was denied, and, falling victim to his pride and ego, resigned his colonial commission in protest. Returning to civilian life, George focused on his prize, Mount Vernon. Left to Brother Lawrence once his father died, George stood to gain possession of the plantation once his widow Anne passed away. After she remarried, Anne vacated Mount Vernon and allowed George to lease the property from her. No longer would he be a military man. Washington was now dedicated to becoming a planter. George met Martha Dandridge Custis in mid-March 1758 and took an immediate liking to the wealthy widow. Introduced by his friend Richard Chamberlain, George was smitten with the young mother of two and strived to make a good impression. As I will discuss in my episode about Martha, George was not the only suitor in town, and she had her choice of who to marry. His charms must have worked as the two were married on January 6, 1759, after only spending a few weeks in each other's company. His marriage to Martha gave George the financial security and status he had so longed for. Martha brought to the marriage a large estate covering thousands of acres and hundreds of enslaved individuals. As her husband died without a will, the law stated Martha was entitled to only one-third of the estate for herself, and the remaining two-thirds were to be held for her son, Jack. By marrying Martha, George gained wealth, but he also gained a responsibility to successfully manage the estate in trust for his new stepson. And while his military career did not get off to the greatest of starts, the American Revolution served as a relaunch of sorts for his career. Nominated to be the commander-in-chief of the Revolutionary Army by John Adams, Washington took charge in June of 1775. The war proved challenging. I mentioned in my episode on the Revolution that the army was a mix of random colonial men without any formal training. Add to this the unorganized approach to supporting the army, and Washington was getting hit from all sides. Unable to fund salaries, supplies, or food, 
he constantly battled low morale and an unreliable Congress. Washington tried every ploy he could think of to get Congress to provide the necessary funding and rations, and while his pleas were met with effusive support, concrete action was hard to come by. And though the colonists ended up winning the revolution, it was not due to some brilliant military action on Washington's part. Again, I mentioned this when doing my episode on the revolution, so if you haven't checked it out yet, you better queue it up after this one. But basically, the colonists won by waiting out the British. So while Washington tried to win every battle he encountered, ultimately, the colonies gained their independence due more to British exhaustion rather than American military might. In what would prove to be a pivotal moment in his career and life, Washington's voluntary resignation and announced retirement from the position of commander-in-chief would be the catalyst that would throw him into the presidency some six years later. Appearing before Congress to announce his retirement, Washington said, quote, I consider it an indispensable duty to close this last solemn act of my official life by commending the interests of our dearest country to the protection of Almighty God and those who have the superintendence of them to his holy keeping, end quote. The next time we visit the story of Washington, it will be to discuss his establishment of the executive and his influence over the position of President of the United States. If you need a primer for what Washington was up to between resigning from his military post and becoming president, I suggest you go back a few weeks and listen to the episodes about the Constitution. He figured prominently there, and it will give you the extra context you'll need for when we return to our first president. Until then, be sure to check out the website, civicsandcoffee.com, where you can get show notes, prior episodes, and information on how you can support the pod. And speaking of support, a big thank you to Sherry for her contribution through Buy Me a Coffee. Thank you so much, friend! And a shout out to Peter with the podcast Two Songs, One Couple for his support of the show as well. I appreciate you so much. And peeps, if you haven't checked out the podcast yet, go take a listen. He and his co-host, Sam, who also happens to be his wife, swap music and dissect each other's picks. You will giggle at least once an episode, I guarantee you. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Civics and Coffee. If you want to hear more small snippets from American history, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining me, and I look forward to our next cup of coffee together.